Kia ora and welcome to Cultured Conversations. My name is Kirsten Lacey and I am the director of the Auckland Art Gallery, Toyo Tamaki. We've created this podcast series so as to bring to you a range of ideas and issues that are shaping the cultural well-being of our communities here in Aotearoa, New Zealand and the broader region. Uh, speaking to a whole range of different leaders in a range of sectors as well at the nexus of where arts and culture intersect with governance, government, policy, local politics uh, and uh, health and wellbeing. I'm particularly excited today to be joined by tribal historian Joe Pihama, who is uh, also a Toreo expert, a senior advisor on Tikanga to Natifatua Arake, and also now the inaugural Potikanga at the Auckland Art Gallery. Uh, Joe has uh, 25 years' experience in Maori education, Maori broadcasting, and the cultural sector. A former member of the Natifatua Arake Trust Board and current member of the Auckland War Memorial, Tomata A Iwi. Um, we're really, really lucky to have Joe with us today for this conversation. Welcome, Joe. Tenakwe Kirsten. I thought we might start our conversation today, Joe. Um, just want to draw your mind back to your early years, really growing up, to give our listeners a bit of a sense of how you began to corral the enormous body of knowledge that you carry with you today. Where did that begin? Where did your education, Māori education, begin? It began at home, at the feet of my, my father and my mother, uh, who were both very culturally uh, aware, uh, endowed, uh, they were a part of a new uh, generation, I think, for Ngāti Whātua, Ōrāke, uh, that were beginning to uh, push themselves out of the, uh, let's say, the heavier times of the 1950s and 1960s. And uh, when I came along, uh, my father uh, and my mother had taken on various roles within the community uh, to help. Uh, re-elevate and re-establish the presence of Ngāti Whātua. Uh, because if we go back to 1952, uh, our tribal village had been um, pretty much uh, destroyed by the council. And uh, that was on the back of probably uh, 50 years of concerted and focused energy by the, the Konihira, the Auckland City Council and the government to uh, relieve the Ngāti Whātua owners of their land and to uh, move us off elsewhere uh, because it was prime land. It is prime land. Uh, our, uh, our papakainga, which uh, was in 1952, uh, on the foreshore at Ōkahu Bay. And so if you drive now along there, you'll find that there's a beautiful park and, and lots of uh, green uh, area to play on and relax upon and you've got the beach well that was our home uh, however in 1952 uh, the final axe had fallen really on our people the uh, the village had been demolished uh, by the bulldozers of the council and my people had been moved into state housing up on top of the hill adjacent to uh, our old papakainga where you'll find it now and um, many of the whanau there actually uh, weren't able to 
to fit into the homes that had been provided by the government. And so they were forced to move away and um, families were broken, connections to the whenua were broken, uh, the connections uh, to the deeper uh, philosophy of, of tangata whenua and tūranga waiwai, they were de- destroyed. In the 1970s, uh, Ngāti Whātua had uh, scratched itself out of the dirt again and um, had begun to reluctantly uh, work alongside other organisations and parties, including um, a, you know, a, a very um, well-meaning Pākehā community at that time to raise money, funding to rebuild a marae, uh, which is our marae that we have today uh, at Orake. And so that was the environment that I grew up in, uh, a time of great change, a time of ambition, However, uh, a lot of heaviness still attached to uh, the, uh, the generation that had um, lived through all of that turmoil. How long had your family uh, been living on that land where the marae now stands? How far does it go back, that relationship to that part of Auckland? Well, all of that area, including where the marae, the new marae, mm. uh, now stands... That was all part and parcel of the tribal lands anyway. Uh, however, it wasn't the papakainga uh, that had been more or less established in the 1820s as a permanent um, papakainga, as a permanent village uh, for the people of Ngāti Whātua or Orake, as we know them now. From the 1750s right through to 1820, uh, the Okahu Bay area, the Orake area that we know now, was one of a number of satellite villages that would be occupied and inhabited for a time during the year according to the uh, the movements of the environment, the changes in the environment, uh, the fishing calendar, um, the different um, seasons of the year in terms of growing food and whatnot. And so uh, my people did move around uh, Tamaki Makoto. Uh, and would live in different parts of Tamaki at different times of the year. However, in the 1820s, it was determined uh, by Apihai Tekabo and other uh, leading chiefs of the time that Okahu Bay would be the headquarters for his people. Now, you mentioned Apihai Tekawa, the paramount chief at Ngāti Whātua mm. at that time. There's an important anniversary coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about that and um, Apiha's relationship to the Crown and the gifting of Auckland? Because this part of of Arake um, that you're talking about, how does that fit within what happened um, with Apiha and his agreement with the Crown? Sure. Location is everything. And so if we look at the location of uh, the Auckland Art Gallery, uh, Toyo Tamaki, where it sits is in the uh, the Horotiu area, and um, that's right in the middle of a parcel of land that was gifted by Apihai. But I just want to take us back very quickly. In 1740, uh, there was a huge change of residence, you know, I should say, here in Auckland, in Tamaki Makoto, uh, where you had the original. Uh, or previous tangata whenua, the, the Waiohua people. Uh, they were pretty much resident 
right through this Tamaki Makoto Auckland Isthmus. But come the period of 1740, there'd been uh, a number of issues and uh, we were attacked by the Waiohua uh, in the southern Kaipara area where we uh, pretty much lived. That was the border. But after the attack on our people, it was determined that there would be uh, a number of um, revenge attacks back on the Waiohua. However, the third and penultimate battle, it was decided by the Te Tau and Te Tau people. Uh, these would morph into what we know as Ngāti Whātua now, illustrious tūpuna. Uh, however, uh, Tupiriri, uh, Apihai Te Kawa's grandfather, he was the leader in the final penultimate battle. Waiohua were defeated. Te Tau then took pretty much a hold of this whole area, the whole of the Tāmaki Isthmus, as their territory. And so it expanded the territory, the Ngāti Whātua territory as we know it today, but it was really the Te Tau territory. So that's the context that Apihai was born into, to uh, his father, Tarahawaiki, son of Tupiriri, and also to his mother, Mokorua. And she was uh, pretty much from the Waiohua uh, gene pool. And so she was married as part of an alliance-building uh, strategy. And so Apihai was born. He carried the whakapapa of not only the invaders and the conquerors, but also the whakapapa of those who had uh, been here before, who were conquered, and who were uh, the long, deep holders of the DNA of the whakapapa of this area for over 500 years previous. And so you've got Apihai. He is the, the coming together Amazing. of the conqueror and the conquered. Uh, he was having to navigate his people through a, a really uh, tumultuous period. Uh, let's say in the, uh, the 1820s, you had the rise of Ngāpuhi, uh, their ability through their, the hundreds of guns that they had, through the armoury that they'd gotten together. Ngāpuhi were now going out and attacking every iwi who had formally defeated them. We were on the... Uh, you know, on that list of iwi to be, you know, repaid in kind mm. or not kind. And so that did come. Retribution from Hungiheka and Ngāpuhi came in 1825. Tāmaki had been totally devastated. Uh, it had become desolate. There was no one living here for a, a full 10 years because of the fear of the gun. But in 1835, 1836, you have the of these people back to their homelands in Tamaki Makoto, and Apihai uh, was right at the forefront in ensuring that his people were able to reclaim, resettle, and to uh, rekindle those fires, the ahika, uh, the uh, the fires of occupation, mm. the fires of of mana, back on the lands of Ngati Fatua. And um, eighteen forty is a pivotal year. Um, Apihai and his people have, have only just resettled the Orake Okahu Kainga again. They've just come back. And um, uh, there's a major hui that's been called by Apihai and other chiefs of Te Tau, of Ngaoho, Te Uringutu. These are the hapu of Ngāti Whātua. And they were really wanting to find out, well, what the hell are we up to? You know, Ngāpuhi laid devastation to our, our lands, to our people, uh, and in the last five years we've come back to Tamaki, but we've really got to figure out how are we going to progress forward because now we have the Pākehā, 
who are starting to become a part of the wider social context. Our international list is um, Pākehā, we're referring to non-Māori that are beginning to settle and the numbers growing rapidly in Auckland at that time, right? That's right. And so yeah. in 1840, uh, Pākehā, uh, non-Māori, European distraction, uh, uh, extraction, uh, who became a distraction, <laughs> uh, you're seeing growing numbers. Not These aren't the whalers and traders. I mean, they were here 30 years before in Aotearoa. We're now talking about uh, people looking to buy land, uh, to uh, make a dollar. We're talking about uh, people who are coming in to actually uh, try their luck. And so Apihai Takawa and his people get together in 1840 in February. And during that hui, uh, you get this narrative or the prophecy uh, that uh, is revealed by a tohunga. And a tohunga is a seer, a spiritual advisor, a expert. And the vision becomes pretty much a seminal kōrero or narrative for Ngāti Whātua. And it goes like this. He ahate hau e wawara e wawara, he tiuheraki nāna iā mai te pūpū taraki hikiuta. E tiki nātu e au te kōtu ko ia te pou te pou whakairo, kātu ki te wai te mata. And basically the translation is, what are the winds that blow? What are they that blow to the north, these northern winds? It is the wind that blows the pūpū tariki, the nautilus shell, upon the shores here. I'll go and fetch it. I will fetch that wind, I will fetch the nautilus shell, and I will erect a carved post here in Tāmaki at the Waitemata. Uh, waters. After the prophecy was given, Apihai, his advisors and other chiefs uh, sat down and had a discussion and there were three major tohu or symbols that came out of it. And the tohu were the ho, the wind, being an authority or a uh, this new mana that had that was making noises. The second one was the pūpū tarakihi, the white nautilus shell, blown ashore. And they saw it as being the clippers and the ships and the schooners coming into the Waitemata harbour en masse. And the final num- uh, the final tohu was the pōwhakairo, the carved post which Apihai would erect within his uh, territory. After a brief hui again and discussion about what uh, this may have, uh, what were the portents of it, uh, it was decided that, ah, there was a big hui up in the north, the Treaty of Waitangi. And uh, there was a great Pākehā chief. We must go and fetch him. And we will bring him down to the Waitemata to Tāmaki Makaurau. Mm-hmm. And we will erect him and establish him as a friend and as a authority for the Pākehā that are coming into this area too. Mm. And so Apihai uh, sent his uh, envoy of his nephew Terewiti and a group to go and fetch Hobson. And the the message to Hobson was, to you, uh, the great chief, uh, we offer you a place to bring your people, to bring your house of authority to the beautiful lands of Ngāti Whātua, where we will be a friend for you. That offer was accepted by Hobson and uh, 
you had the first group of government officials led by Captain Simons and of course you had Felton Matthew and other um, surveyors and whatnot come down to uh, establish whether there was a benefit in accepting the offer of moving from Kororarika, Russell, Bay of Islands, down to Auckland, Tamaki Makoto. And in those conversations between Apiha and Hobson, what were they envisaging together for the growth and establishment of you know, this kind of bicultural community here in Tamaki Makoto? What were they imagining for the future? Well, I can only um, delve probably into the, the mind of my tupuna, who's my great, 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 great grandfather, Apihai Tekawo. And all I could imagine is that Apihai had seen the advantages and the benefits of a friendship, a relationship with the Pākehā uh, people who were coming into Aotearoa. And so no doubt Apihai had foremost in his mind a desire and want to explore a relationship uh, that would open uh, opportunities for uh, learning, exchanging, trading, but also friendship and an ongoing relationship that would be yeah, mutually beneficial for Māori and Pākehā. 1840, you get that first group of government officials representing Hobson coming down. And on March 20th, you've got um, Captain Simon uh, already getting Apihai and three others from Ngāti Whātua to sign uh, the Treaty of Waitangi on the Manukau, uh, the shores of the Manukau. And so they were moving pretty quick. And so I think as the, uh, the Treaty of Waitangi was signed in March, that's fine. Apihai was still trying to figure out, well, what does it mean, partnership here? What does it mean in terms of the protection of our taonga, but also um, allowing uh, the British to come in here and be able to manage their people, ensuring that my way of life, uh, my beliefs, my philosophies aren't, aren't lost I don't think Apihai ever foresaw uh, what would happen uh, post-1840. You know, Apihai and his people were working to uh, bring, uh, I think, right onto their doorstep, uh, Hobson, who could uh, give real embodiment to what the treaty, what it was implying in terms of partnership, mana and mana, authority and authority being retained by Māori, I think that was really important. You know, the, the trading and whatnot, that was great, but more so it was about the mana, the authority being recognised going forward. However, Apihai was happy to make the first tuku, uh, the release of land, a gift, which would be taken from the top of Maungafau, Mount Eden. It would lay a line down toward Parnell, Taurarua, to the east and on the western side, out to Opo Tuteka, uh, Hearn Bay. And what we have now is we've got a 3,000-acre uh, parcel of land which was gifted by Apihai, which was, I think, uh, an extension of Apihai's desire to, I think, really get this relationship moving. And uh, that land was uh, gifted, and on the 18th of September, 1840, You've got a group of government officials, Ngāti Whātua, 
they're, um, they're standing over at Te Reringa Oraiti, which uh, is pretty much near the end of Princes Street at the university where it starts to duck down. And um, they run a flag up the flagpole. Uh, there's a 21-gun salute, I think, and a uh, hurrah, hurrah, haka, and waiata, no doubt. And that becomes the recognition yeah. of that um, transfer of land and the beginning of what would become the birth of Auckland. And I think it's really important to remember that um, Logan Campbell uh, lies on top of One Tree Hill. One Tree Hill, Maungakiaki, really important because it was the first papakainga of Tupiriri, the conqueror of Tamaki, grandfather of Apihai. And that Logan Campbell would choose that site to be his final resting place, which, you know, for Ngāti Whātua, it kind of, you know, it's, it, it, it hurts in a, in, a, in a, you know, up here. However, let's correct the record. Logan Campbell, he came here to try and make a dollar. And he was a trader. He was a, um, a storekeeper. He was, you know, he had his fingers in everything. But you've got Apihai Takabo, mm. who was sought out by Logan Campbell as a younger man to sell him land, you know, to give him land and whatnot. Now, you've got Logan Campbell acknowledged as the father of Auckland. You know, we've got to correct this, eh? You know, the, the, it's pretty the, uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. What we've got to understand is that the gifting of that 3,000 acre uh, block of land, it wouldn't have happened without Apihai. Apihai was the paramount chief of the Tamaki Makoto area. There was no other who had authority above Apihai. Hobson was a guest coming in to Apihai's domain. And Apihai gave that land to, uh, again, uh, create uh, that opportunity for friendship, for partnership, and a, uh, a physical gesture to say to Hobson, let's make this happen, let's do it. Today, Apihai uh, Takawa has been almost forgotten, you know, within the annals of history. And uh, you've got uh, Logan Campbell up on top of you know, my old place, uh, Kia uh with the words, the father of Auckland, well, that's rubbish. Uh, Logan Campbell came here to make a buck. Uh, he came here to make some money. It was Apihai Takawo who allowed and enabled uh, this, you know, beautiful city to be born into what it is now, Tamaki Makoto, then Auckland. So um, we're really pleased, actually, that in the last few years, Ngāti Whātua has been able to resurrect uh, that narrative and to commemorate Apihai Te Kabo, but not only Apihai, but the other uh, rangatira of Ngāti Whātua who agreed that, yeah. Such an important story, and really everyone living in Auckland should know the name Apihai Te Kawa and what he did for what is now... Auckland, um, a city that we love. I mean, it's such a small thing, but 
really pleased that we we are acknowledging Apiha in the naming of one of our galleries, mm. um, and uh, you know due due to uh, to do that um, at the time of this anniversary as well, um, a small matter, but in a gallery that's 137 years old, you know, well and truly overdue as well. I just want to, I guess, get your sense about naming and the place names around Auckland because they are a real conduit to be able to tell stories, stories that shouldn't be lost. Is there anywhere um, outside of the Morai where Apiha and his father before him are acknowledged in our civic place names? There are some places that Apiha uh, has been recognised again lately. There's a couple of lovely commemoration markers, I think we can call them, that um, that note in a, in a public way. However, um, if you look back at the names of the uh, the, the places within Tāmaki Makoto, uh, you do have uh, names that still remain there that have a relationship to Apihai, to Pupu or to Kawo over on the Tāmaki River uh, referring to the bundle of uh, hair uh, of Apihai where he would have probably had his hair sacred ritual, had his hair cut. Um, you've got um, other places around which uh, do refer to Apihai. However, Apihai's father and grandfather came to Tamaki to conquer it. A lot of it had already been named. And so a lot of those older names remained Take, for instance, Paritai Drive, which is one of your very affluent addresses in Auckland, uh, North Ake. Well, the corner of Paritai Drive is called Onipu Whakatakataka. Onipu Whakatakataka means the beach upon which the many fell upon uh, or stumbled upon. Now, that's got two parts. One is uh, you've got a man by the name of Kafaru who is thought to have fallen over down there on the beach or from a previous battle there where bodies of the slain were tossed over and tumbled down onto the beach. Then in the deeper narrative, you then recall the names of the people who were there, the whakapapa genealogies, the connectivity to the people who were involved in the battle, to the survivors, to those who live today and carry uh, that DNA who are the embodiment now of those who were before. Those are important, and they're everywhere. You know, right throughout Tamaki Makoto, they still remain. Mm. They may be covered over in concrete, they may be covered over in buildings and whatnot, but they are there. But not only that, the library of of um, narrative that they lead you into, they all still remain. Mm. Some are missing, mm. uh, but there's a lot of narrative and there's a lot of connections uh, that are very real today. So... Mm. Um, I think September 18 reconnects us all into a time to the beginnings of this bicultural environment because it does mark the birth of Auckland, but it marks a partnership. It marks an environment that was quite different to the environment that was before it, which was very Māori, which was Māori-driven, which was dominated by Māori philosophy, Māori narrative, Māori, place names. Morning tonight, it was a Māori world. Mm. I've got just two more questions sure. for you. Um, thinking about 
the beginnings of that relationship uh, with what be- has now become the Auckland City Council, effectively, mm. um, to now as well, looking at uh, Ngāti Whātua, the biggest ratepayer in the whole city. What are, are your hopes in terms of the relationship with the city, mm. uh, particularly looking at the lenses this, of this you know, often explored idea around co-governance? What would the ideal be like in terms of the relationship between Ngāti Whātua and the city here? I think the 18th of September is a good time for the council to recalibrate uh, its vision and its view with regard to tangata whenua. At the moment, there is a statutory and legislative environment. However it's happened, it's happened. Uh, But there has been a recognition of 18 other iwi and that recognition has led to a number of acknowledgements which have led to then a number of rights through different bylaws and whatnot and the creation of forums which give a voice and give authority to these 18 other um, people. These people now call themselves mana whenua and I think it's really become a distraction. It's become a huge um, place of concern, I think, for not only Ngāti Whātua as tangata whenua, in, in Tamaki Makoto, but I think it it is a concern uh, for the whole of Māoridom. And so the 18th of September is a great time for the local council to recalibrate and to actually look at the Treaty of Waitangi and the solemn pact and partnership between Tangata Whenua and the Crown. And that's where the relationship should be. And so my hope is that uh, we can start to refocus the co-governance space between the Crown via the Council and Tangata Whenua via Ngāti Whātua so that uh, we can get to a point of understanding as to how can we all cater to and manaki and care for not only the ratepayers, not only those that, that live here in Tamaki and don't pay rates, regardless of where you're from, or your uh, tribal background, or your ethnic origins, or whatever, I think the Crown, via the Council, and Ngāti Whātua have a job to look after and to care for uh, well-being and to elevate abundance for all people here in Tāmaki Makoto. Mm. But it's got to be done properly, and it's got to be done through the lens of a treaty-based partnership, and not one that's uh, been brought about through um, through a recent statute or other legislation. So let's get back to 1840, September 18. Who was it that gifted the land that allowed Hobson and his government to come here, that allowed for the settlement of Tamaki Makoto, that allowed for the birth of Auckland City? Who was it that put the hand out to offer that gift it was Apihai Te Kawa, it was Ngāti Whātua. Mm. So let's get back to that uh, common ground again. Mm. It's such an extraordinary history um, uh, throughout the, the the 20th century and that mid-century moment as well and, and to see what the iwi have achieved in, you know, regeneration of the Gulf, Huraki Gulf, um, in education, in healthcare, in all the business interests. Um, it's it's really um, amazing to journey and, you know, a great story to be told. You brought with you today, Joe, your 
Toka Toka. Toka Toka. Toka Toka. <laughs> Can you share with me um, the story of this walking stick? Mm. It's relatively new. It was carved for me uh, by a man uh, by the name of Juani Opodi, and he carved it for me when I graduated from Te Panekiritanga or Te Reo Māori, which is the School of Excellence for Te Reo Māori. And that was in 2014. It was carved basically uh, as a uh, yeah to commemorate that time of graduation. However, it is very similar to Tukotuko of old, and it is a uh, also a aid to remember Whakapapa. So while I'm um, reciting Whakapapa, uh, it has different lines here. And if you count these parts here, there are actually 10 of them from there to there. And the figure at the top here, his name is Tupiriri, Tupiriri, the original conqueror, the grandfather of Apihai. And if you count down these lines here, they bring it down to me. And so Tupiriri, Tarahawaiki, Apihai te kawo, uh, Apihai had hira whakamana, Hami Patioro, Hami had Kirihipina, uh, Kirihipina had uh, Matehuirua, Matehuirua had Meringaroto, Hapi, myself, and then you've got my children. And so it's not only an aid for reciting whakapapa, but it's also an embodiment of uh, an extension of me, of who I am, when I'm undertaking whaikōrero, uh, when I'm undertaking uh, formal oratory. It's a way for me to uh, extend upon and exude the ihi, the one of the tapu, the different essences of uh, the spiritual and cultural essence, while I'm talking, manipulating uh, the rako here, Tupiriri. It's an extension of me and it's an extension of my tupuna who all talk through me. So I'm not me when I talk, I'm them and they come through me. Amazing. Thank you so much, Joe, for joining okay. with me today. You've been listening to uh, Cultured Conversations. You can dip into more of this series at www.aucklandartgallery.com or on Spotify. Um, iHeartRadio or on Business Desk. You've been uh, listening to Kirsten Lacey, your host, in conversation with Joe Pihima. Thank you.